Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everyone, it's Doc with a special announcement. We are going to take a cruise through some of our most popular episodes from prior seasons to get everyone fired up. Now our new content will continue to drop on Saturdays each week, but we will also be re-releasing these great episodes on Monday for your morning commute. I know you've all heard about Classic Rock. Well, we're going to call these episodes Classic Doc. Sit back, settle in, and enjoy the ride. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. In the course of a lifetime, a series of uncomfortable adventures that shape your character and give you stories to look back and laugh about isn't a disaster. A disaster is a series of unmemorable weeks, months, or years that leave you unchanged. Ben Crawford. Through hiking, it, ex it exposed us to this range of experiences that we spent the night at a CrossFit gym. We spent the night in an abandoned church we spent the night with basically an Amish family or a Mennonite family, uh, something that we never would have just done. We rode in the back of a truck. We hitchhiked, you know, we stayed in the women's bathroom. Like I told you, like just these kind of like, when you think of hiking, I think we'll think like walking in woods. We did that, but some of our favorite experiences were these like one off 
kind of weird things that you only consider when you're a hiker and someone's offering you electricity and hot water. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with the obligatory opening appeal to leave us a review. Here it is. If you're enjoying the podcast, take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, on to this week's content. This week, we are talking to Ben Crawford, author of 2,000 Miles Together, which has been called the most uncomfortably honest through hiking book I've ever read by The Trek. And if that is not a reason to pause the podcast right now and order your copy on Amazon, I'm not sure what is. Welcome to the pod, Ben. Thanks. It's good to be here, Doc. Really excited to have you on the show. And you, you, you need to know right up front that we try and go strictly by trail names. So I'm assuming after 2,000 plus miles on the, on the Appalachian Trail, you have a trail name. That is complicated. Oh, uh, I love it already. <laughs> complicated. I do not have an individual trail name. Okay. Uh, our group trail name was the family really original, huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, but with Just jumps right out at you. Yeah. With, uh, with, you want to hear the story behind it? It's, Absolutely. Uh, you, you have six kids without using birth control and then you end up with a family. Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, how we got the name. Uh, no, we didn't do individual trail names because I, I don't fully know why I know part of the reasons, but Honestly, remembering six alternative names for my kids was not something I was interested in, in doing. That could be complicated. Yeah. I mean, I, I just have three kids and I know just, just, you know, with their regular names, I run through their names, my wife's name, the dog's name before I get to the right kid. So yeah, you start you, yelling at the wrong person. That's right. right. If, you, if you have six <laughs> kids and their regular names and their trail names, that could just be a complete fiasco. By the time you yelled at them for something important, you know, they could have been you know, steamrolled by a falling, falling tree limb or gone off the edge of a cliff. I mean, you, you can't risk that. Exactly. So it was just Ben for the entire trail. Just Ben. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. Just Ben. That just, yes. that's the trail. <laughs> just, name. Isn't that how, the, that's what the trail names are like, man. Uh, I had mixed <laughs> feelings about it too. I mean, the other, the other thing, and this gets a little bit more philosophical about why I didn't do a trail name was because for our family, and this was a family experience, was I wanted the trail to be an extension of our kind of like regular family experience in life, not so much like an escape from it, which the whole trail name thing felt a bit alternate reality-ish to me. So I, I think there was also a little bit of pushback for me just wanting to maintain that kind of culture that we'd created back home. So I don't know. That was, I, I don't know if I, that matters to me a whole lot now, but at the time. Yeah, I totally get it, but I enjoy my alternate reality. You can call me doc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Alternate reality doc. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Hey, I, I want to go back just, just for a second to uh, that review snippet that I read in the intro. 
what made the book so uncomfortable to read? You know, I've, I've ordered my copy. It has not arrived yet. So, you know, uh, advance notice to everybody. I have not read the book, but I, I, I've read a lot about it. Um, so I'm really looking forward to being uncomfortable as I, as I read the book. But what, what, do you, what do you think? Any insight into that, uh, that review by The Trek? Yeah, well, I have my guesses as to what made them uncomfortable. There's a couple scenes in there where, well, our strategy for doing this, like I'm not, I don't want to be anyone's hero. Like that seems like kind of too hard work for me. And I think I spent too much time in religious environments uh, to feel like I was up for that type of job. <clears throat> but I'll tell you what, the thing that I really do well and that I care about is like kind of the more authentic, like brutally honest, like shock factor uh, with saying the obvious thing. And with kids on the trail, I mean, every parent that I know has stories that they're not proud to talk about. Um, sure. And we talked about them. Like we told the story about losing our temper and in this case, it's mostly me about doing the thing that would be embarrassing or you, that you're not proud of. And instead of kind of hiding that, I decided to put it front and center in the book and say to it and you can judge us or you can like I, the opposite has actually happened where I have a lot of people have said, oh, that's actually what happens in our home too, but we don't talk about it. Um, so I think that's probably what people are talking about. Got it. Got it. I, I know for a fact, you know, I've, I've had my moments where I've said, ah, you know, I wish I didn't, I didn't react that way. I wish I didn't respond that way. I wish I could do that over. And so, yeah, that, that, I, I assume that's a, a common uh, occurrence with, with parents. It is. And, and part of our, <clears throat> you know, part of our, uh, my desire to write the book is to let people know that they're not alone in that. And we had kind of a, almost an, a very exaggerated example. I mean, you can imagine what people experience in the church parking lot or walking into Target or wherever your, your example might be. Mm -hmm. But for us walking with 2000 miles with our kids, um, th these things, it was like that on crack cocaine, like in terms of the levels of frustration and it becomes life or death. And I guess I wanted to let people know if it's okay for us to lose our temper or our cool or make mistakes in this type of crazy environment, it's certainly okay if you do it back home too. I mean, not like it's okay, like I want to condone it. I don't think anyone will get that message from the book, but that life goes on and there's no mistake that's going to ruin everything. And it's actually more about how you move on from the mistake and how you ask, uh, you apologize to your kids maybe, or even how you view yourself as a result of that, if you learn from it, things like that. Okay. Now, before we get too far down the trail, let's, uh, let's go over the names themselves. Uh, since we're not talking trail names, you're, you're, you're not put on the spot here. You can very easily remember the actual names of, of your family. Who was, on the, who was on the hike with you? Oh, geez, was this on the prep list? I, don't, I didn't have time to prepare for all this. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's six names, so I'll have to, let me, let me jog my memory. Um, no, so our kids uh, on the hike, the were ages, I'm just going to tell you the oldest and youngest because I'm not going to remember the other ages. We're uh, 16 to 2 when we started. Wow. And our oldest, uh, we have four girls and two boys. Our oldest, her name was Dove. She was 16 and she turned 17 on trail. Then Eden, uh, that's my second daughter. Um, and then my son's name is Seven, like the number. Uh, 
And then my fourth child is another daughter named Memory. And then my fifth child is another daughter named Thalia. And my sixth child is my son. He was two and his name is Rainier, like the mountain. Now, I guess I'll also say Flea at the age of seven, she was, she set the record at the time we were told as being the youngest female to ever through hike the AT. And you can also tell by my kids' names why I didn't feel the need to award them trail names. <laughs> I was just gonna weigh in on that. You stole my thunder, Ben. I was gonna say, hey. <laughs> Uh, yeah, very creative names there, and those might go as trail names. That's that's awesome, and I like that the third the third born is named Seven. So that I yeah I just yeah that makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> love it, I love it, man. That's awesome. Okay, hey, have you listened to the podcast before? And I have I'm not. Trying, I'm not trying to 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 guilt you into saying yes. I just want to make sure that you are aware of a regular feature on the podcast, which is we call the Pro Tip Insight of the Week, and that is a point towards the end of the episode where I'm going to turn to you and say, "Hey, Just Ben, what is your Pro Tip Insight of the Week? What can you share? What tip? What secret? What uh, what piece of advice can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure that much more epic?" All right, I'm going to be thinking of something so awesome that people are going to have to listen to the entire thing to find out what it is. Fantastic. I love when you load it up like that. They've got to just keep <laughs> on listening. Very good. Hey, another feature we've been doing this season is the must-bring gear review. Here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So Ben, what's your, what's your must bring piece of gear? Jeez. Um, you know, I would have to say, oh man, I have to kind of go between two, uh, a pair of ultra shoes, mm -hmm. just because in my experience, the switch during our hike to those shoes made such a big difference. It was night and day. What did you switch from? Um, I switched from the Merrill, uh, Merrill Moab, is it a Merrill Moab ventilator? I think is what it's called that I used for almost maybe like 15 years before. Um, I was, I was pretty religious with that shoe, mostly because of the ventilation. My feet uh, sweat a lot. I hate wet socks. That's like the worst. Mm -hmm. So I use that shoe forever and it's a great shoe. Um, but the, kind of the philosophy behind ultra and just the way that they shape the shoe and, and make the wider toe box, man, I put those on, uh, in Damascus, which I believe is five or 600 miles in. It felt like I was walking on clouds the next day. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. I've got me. a pair of ultras. I know what you're talking about. It, yeah. It, I mean, it just was a big deal. Um, and there I'm not, uh, we, we have been like, I guess, not really sponsored, but they've hooked us up with shoes in the past, but it's not, uh, I'm not paid to say that or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second item would just be trekking poles, period. Um, just, you know, I mean, I think most through hikers know this, but if you're new to the scene, if you're like wondering, like, what can I do for not only safety, stability, like knees, uh, feet, uh, joints, everyone has them. That's, that's yeah. serious about it. Excellent, excellent uh, recommendations there. I know that as a new hiker a few years back that uh, I was wondering about the whole trekking pole thing and worried about, oh, I'm going to look goofy with these poles. I don't they see seem weird. Yeah, they seem weird, but man, they are lifesavers. 
You know what though, when you go to Europe and you screw around in the mountains, every single person, every grandma walking to the grocery store seems to be, seems to have a pair of trekking poles in the U S they're strange, like only through hikers use them, but not in Europe, in Europe, everyone has them. Yeah. Yeah. And Hey, I don't want you to get in trouble, Ben, because I realized that you left somebody out of the, uh, out of the family. I, I never heard about Mrs. Ben. Oh, my wife. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, well, that's, <laughs> I told you, I, I, I didn't have enough time to uh, go through the uh, prep. Uh, my wife um, and I got married some 20 years ago. And if you do the math, our oldest is 20. So we were married and pregnant quick. Most of our life has been with kids and about half my life has been married uh, to her. And we did the entire trail together. And I would very much say that we co-led the expedition and we're actually planning on co-writing the book together, but for logistical reasons, it just kind of became more my project. Do you want to give her a name? Ah, yeah. Her name is Cami with a K, K-A-M-I. Cami with a K. Okay, very good. All right, so Ben, to get us started today, I'm going to borrow from the book description of 2,000 Miles Together. So bear with me just for a second here. Give our, our listeners some insight into what we're going to be covering tonight. So uh, here we go. Number one Amazon bestseller, 2,000 Miles Together, is the story of the largest family ever to complete a thru-hike of the Appalachian Trail, defying skeptics and finding friends in the unlikeliest of places. On the trail, Ben Crawford battled not only the many dangers and obstacles presented by the wilderness, snowstorms, record-breaking heat, Lyme disease, overflowing rivers, toothaches, rattlesnakes, forest fires, and spending the night with a cult, but also his own self-doubt. In an effort to bring his family closer together, he, was he jeopardizing his future relationship with his kids? When the hike was done, would any of them speak to him again? What's a... Shit, we're, that sounds all dramatic when you it read does, it like that. It does. I feel like you should be like this is a movie trailer, <laughs> and you should uh, there should be dramatic music playing in the background. Yeah, that'd be nice. And we're gonna get. To, I'm gonna. I want to touch on all of that good stuff in there. This, this is gonna be. This is gonna be great. But what is your initial reaction to that description? What are your thoughts? I mean, honestly, my initial reaction hearing it this time is like because it's funny having you read it and you are familiar with hiker culture. That that sounds really dramatic, but to a standard hiker, that's like common shit. You know, like, oh, ticks and or Lyme disease and like forest fire. It's like, yeah, that's another day. Yeah, in we the call office. that we, we call that a Tuesday, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, it's of course the book description is probably written to to uh, itch the ears of people who aren't familiar with what through hiking is mm-hmm. and make it sound a little bit more dramatic. But but then again, we did face all those things. Um, and with each of those things came a lot of maybe a little bit more complexity than the average person, because when you're an individual and you have a toothache, you can make the decision. It's a hard decision, but it's still a decision that you make. But with us, it's like, we have the group dynamic of eight people. We have, we're making a decision for a seven-year-old, you know? And so not only is there her health, but it's like, are we going to be seen as good parents and bad parents? And the question that every through hiker asks themselves, is this going to affect my ability to finish the trail or how much should that matter? You know, so it, right. it gets complicated. Yes. And, you know, I, I realized uh, when you started talking there, that was kind of a, a nonsensical question about asking for your initial reaction. Of course, you've heard this, you've seen that quote, you've read it before. And so it wouldn't be your initial reaction. It'd be, what is your reaction on the, the John freaking your pod to that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wrote it or at least, you know, I helped write it, but <laughs> 
but every time it's weird in different contexts, uh, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Having to ask what that means to me now, it's, it's, it changes. Yeah. You know, so much goes, goes, uh, awry in just daily life, uh, in a family, you know, I've got three, you've got six and you're right. Thinking about, you know, is this going to impact my ability to finish the hike? Just, just when I'm out there with a couple of buddies hiking, right? What could go wrong? What possibly could go wrong when there's just three uh, adult males out on the trail? That kind of pales in comparison to what could possibly go wrong with a family of eight with the age ranges of those kids. I mean, that, I mean, for, for, the, for, for you to be able to complete that 2000 mile trek, a lot of dominoes have to fall in the right spots for you. That's incredible. Yeah, that's, that became increasingly clear than the more days that were out there. And it's, it's weird. I mean, in one day it felt like a bunch of miracle or in one way it felt like a bunch of miracles, <clears throat> you know, that no one got injured walking the miles that we did and over the seasons that we did. And then in another way, it's kind of just like regular life also, because I don't know. I guess there's just two ways to look at it all the time. Um, you know, through hiking, it has kind of a glorious, um, I don't know, a glorious sound. It sounds like this amazing activity, but at the end of the day, it's, it's walking, right? I mean, you're putting one foot in front of the other. It's like the simplest thing on the planet. You're just in our culture. It sounds crazy to be a through hiker, but essentially means what did you do? Like, Hey, I walked. Uh, and that's what we did. And yeah, a bunch of things went wrong and a bunch of things went right. But at the end, it's, it's weird that I guess I'm very aware that our finishing of the trail, I think made in this case, the book a lot more marketable. You know, we set the record for being the largest family and it kind of mm -hmm. like made us notable, but in a way, let's say we would have finished the, or like got a sprained ankle 100 miles earlier, like, and not been able to finish the trail. Well, like, okay, so we wouldn't have the title but it would have been as epic, you know, I think we would have still had the experience we had. So. And before, before you guys set out, what was the previous record for family size out there? That I don't know, actually. That that's a good question because we didn't really, we didn't do this to break the record and we didn't really have much knowledge of, I don't even, you know, it's, it, I don't think it's an official record anyways. Um, and I don't even know who keeps track of that stuff, but just a number of people have told us that we were like people that I trust. Uh, the ATC mentioned it. And then I think Warren Doyle, um, who I've heard is an unofficial record keeper also okay. mentioned it to us. So, well, if, if those, if those two mentioned it, then, you know, it's good enough for me. That's right. Good enough for me too. Very good. And at the end of the day, if I find out I wasn't the largest family, I, it, you know, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't change things for us. And in fact, you know, like I said, my daughter was the youngest female to do it. And then the next year, I think a younger female did it. And it was like, oh, I'm really happy for them. And Absolutely. I fact, if a larger family breaks the record next year, I will cheer for them too. Nice. That's a nice, that's a nice attitude. That way you're never, you're, you're, you spend a lot of your life happy when you, when you live that way. So that's good. Very good. Yeah. I don't think it needs to be competitive. <laughs> now I, we're going to get to the hike. Uh, I'm going to save it make sure our listeners listen all the way through. We're going to, we're going to get to that a little bit later, but before I go on to other, other topics here, I want, I have to ask, you know, everybody's wearing a pack, right? Everybody's got their gear. Everybody's got their pack. 
and you have a you have a two year old that he, went on the hike. He did not have a pack. He did he not was, have a. He pack. was in a pack. That's what I was going to say. I, who who got to carry the pack and the two year old? So that is actually a major um, question in terms of our success because that it started off. My wife was going to carry him. And we thought that that would like strategically make sense, I think, because she was more bonded with him. And I think we thought, well, maybe we can shift the weight so I could carry most of it. Anyways, that lasted about uh, like five days. It was, the pack was 44 pounds with him in it. So it's a heavy pack. Yeah. Um, and four days into it, I started carrying him. And then I proceeded to carry him for about the next 600 miles. Uh, I, it was probably a month, maybe a, maybe a month and a half. And I was dying. Um, like I lost 30 pounds uh, in the first three weeks, I think. <clears throat> and wow. I, my hip was going, or my uh, thigh was going numb. I was constantly, I mean, there's through hiker, like everyone deals with stuff, right? But I was uh, just tired all the time. Like I would take these naps during break for, uh, like I would set my timer for eight minutes so I could sleep for five. And I was lagging behind the group and just pretty miserable. And about five or 600 miles in, in the Shenandoahs in Virginia, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter issued this kind of, we, we roll up and she was like, where the hell have you guys been? I'm like, I'm carrying your brother. Like, where the fuck do you think we've been? Like, <laughs> and she was like, well, it's taking forever. And I said, well, if you want to do it, why don't you carry him? You know, and it was one of those things you just say, that's kind of like to put a kid in their place. <clears throat> Anyways, my daughter is like me. And she was for like, better, for better or worse, for better or worse, better <laughs> and worse. There you go. And she was like, fine, I'll do it. And I'm like, great, you do it. And you'll see, you'll be miserable in five seconds and you'll complain. Well, she's, I'm stubborn. She's stubborn for four miles. She takes off and doesn't even look back. And we're like catching up to her. And we had this amazing epiphany. This is about a third of the way into our trip that I didn't have to carry the baby alone. And it's, it's one of the highlights of the book is this chapter where I talk about how, how humbling of an experience that was and how I learned that, well, I asked this question, maybe a lot of why my kids are the way they are is not because uh, they're choosing it, but because I'm not letting them, because I, I don't believe that they can do these types of things. Uh, so just to give you an idea, like from a hiker's perspective, we had been making these tweaks because our, you know, our youngest was seven and the weather's cold. So we're taking like, I mean, you can just imagine with a group this size, like when someone takes a break or to, to organize and to get people moving, it's just everything takes longer. So when they say five months REI or whoever that says, however long it's going to take, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to take six or seven months for our group, which means like what would take a normal group 10 hours to take our group 14 hours in a day. So I'm making these tweaks that are like five or 10% like time, like at every break, every morning, like breaking down camp, getting camp set up earlier so we can get to sleep earlier. And still we're not making the miles we needed to, which is like 14, 15 miles a day. And then around six or 700 miles in when our, when my kid started carrying the baby and then we, and then another kid started it, the next kid Eden, and then the next kid seven. Now there's four of us carrying the baby. And now I'm carrying the baby for 30 minutes every two hours. Cause I'm on a four man rotation, you know, that increased our speed by like 25%. Wow. So I just, I mean, that, that was such a big deal in terms of discovering that just on a, as a parenting thing, as a human thing, as a, 
team thing, it, it, it changed the rest of the trip. Ben, I found your trail name. I'm gonna yeah? call. I'm gonna call you Henry Ford. That's that's uh, that's like the production Henry, line. Henry You're the Henry Ford of the Appalachian <laughs> Trail. You know, figuring out a way to to carry that two year old and increase productivity. That's it, right there, man. That that it did kind of feel like that at times. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so there's a, that's a teaser. That's a teaser. That's a little bit little bit of insight into the the uh, two thousand mile plus hike. Uh, with the eight of you. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but I want to back up just a little bit and uh, spend a little time with you going through your history, your background, your growing up uh, period, and how you got involved with the whole through hiking cult. Because that's what we are. We're, we're, we're a cult. Absolutely. Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I grew up in the Seattle area, which is uh, where REI is from. And it's mm -hmm. like uh, very outdoorsy. Yet I did not spend much time outdoors in terms of like any camping or that type of thing. Uh, two weeks before I got married, I biked down the coast from Seattle to San Francisco and we bought it. I bought a tent with a friend. This is my first time I'd ever slept in a tent in that way. And I could not believe it. I thought it was just the most incredible thing. Um, but my parents were, were pretty uh, supportive and I don't know. Thinking outside the box was a normal thing. Uh, my parents had an interracial marriage, which at that time and for where they were from was kind of a big deal. So there was just like the, like through hiking is that way where it's, you get those looks from the, the normal people in society that are like, you don't belong here. Uh, you know, hiker trash type thing. And, and in that way, that type of culture felt very normal for me. So I'm really thankful for the, that attitude that I could kind of like, uh, do anything. They're very supportive of like my sports and just allowed me a lot of freedom and life choices. And what sports did you play growing up? Uh, in high school, I play, I did wrestling. I did cross country, which I hated. I did volleyball because uh, in California they had men's volleyball and I've played racquetball since I was eight years old. Okay. And wh when was the first time you said, Hey, sounds like a good idea to put you know, 30, 40 pounds on my back and uh, go out and be voluntarily homeless for weeks on end? Well, it sounds kind of weird, but it was, well, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's not weird to through hikers, but it was the first time I heard of the trail. So <clears throat> our uh, second year into our marriage, we uh, went on a bike trip across the country, my wife and I, and we had our daughter was one. And we stayed in Damascus, Virginia one night in this garage on these bales of hay. And it was filled with these hikers. And I didn't even know, I, I had never seen like an external frame backpack or even just like a, the type of backpacking backpack that people carry, how big they are. And that you take these, you shove your stuff in there and you go carry what you need overnight in this sack, you know, I, I had never been exposed to that. And that night we stayed up with these two hikers. This was in, um, 2001, I believe, maybe 2002. Uh, their names were Penguin and Tea Time. They're 55 and 60. We have a picture of them with our daughter. And they told us that they were hiking to Maine. And I just could not believe it. And, you know, I've talked to a number of people that are just this way. The second you hear that it exists, you can't not see yourself doing it. That's how it was with me. Um, we got in a bike wreck, I think a day or two later, and all of our gear was ruined. Everyone was okay, but our bike trip was over. I got an insurance settlement 
And the first thing I did was go out and buy backpacks. Like with that money, I was like, uh, I bought these Arcteryx. Like I was like, I, I need a backpack because I, I, I have to do this Appalachian Trail. My wife hated the idea. Um, she was not into it at all. 17 years later, she was the one that wanted to do it. Um, so a lot of change in that time period. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask uh, what Cammy's opinion was of this whole concept. Did she know what she was getting into when she said yes uh, to, uh, to you on bended knee? Oh, with marriage? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think so. To my credit, I, uh, I warned her. And back then, it was more religious and more like I thought I was going to be a missionary in Africa and like die – uh, telling the world about God or Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I thought my life was going to be miserable, uh, not as a through hiker, but as a, like a sold out religious nut. Um, and I told her this, I was like, Hey, this is my plan. Do you want in on this? I kind of tried to get her to change her mind. She wouldn't change her mind. So that's when I, I said, well, fine, will you marry me? And our life has changed in regards to that type of stuff. But I think actually I can now see that a lot of my, my excuses for religion um, or at least my fanaticism of it, it, I'm still the same person, but that's how it manifested was in those ways. Like, so wanting to be a missionary, I was wanting to be the most extreme version of myself. That was the kind of template I was given. And now even as through hikers, you know, you're kind of a fanatical, you gotta be fanatical in a way and walk away from culture and comfort to pursue that. So that I haven't changed in those ways. So yeah, she knew what she was getting into. I think. Ben, I've got to say, you've got to be just, absolutely one hell of a guy if you if you uh you propose and you promise her one version of misery and she says yes and you you exchange that for another form of of misery and she is still right there by your side you know or at least it, there's truth in advertising you know i can say that at least but she's uh i think that's the glory of our relationship and our ability to pull something off is that I didn't have to twist her arm. And I think she's attracted to a lot of the same things I was in terms of what through hiking promises and what it delivers. And, you know, it takes a special type of person to see the glory of it and the benefit of it. And it's always weird to me. I feel like the outside world sees through hikers as people who love pain and the through hikers I know, they are obsessed with pleasure and, and they get it from doing this type of thing and they actually appreciate light bulbs and electricity and hot water because of through hiking in a way that you can't otherwise. So yeah, it's just a certain way of seeing the world that I don't know if it was lucky or just compatibility or what, but. Yeah. And, and to get to that pleasure on the trail, you've got to put in a lot of pain to get to those incredible sites, to be in those places where nobody else can be unless they put in the miles. It's uh, it's kind of a give and take. You do, but it's the pleasure that creates the pain, you know, you, or sorry, the pain that creates the pleasure. Well, both right. sides maybe. And, and it's when you, when you earn it in a different way, it, mm -hmm. yeah, it really takes on this new meaning. Yeah. I have found that in my mind, the most beautiful spots always come after the most difficult of climbs or different difficult sections of the trail. And, th and those are the places that are just emblazoned up upon my memory. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't, think that's um random or coincidental i i've experienced that too yeah did cammy also grow up in seattle yeah she did we grew up um pretty close by each other going to the same camp as a kid and so we kind of met each other when we were 13 or 14 and wow um, a true love story 
Not even high school sweethearts. No, no, we met each other then, but she oh, okay. avoided me for five or six years. And in fact, like like I said, we we're pretty religious. So at um, in like seventeen or eighteen, I I told her, "Hey, I kind of like you," and she said, "I kind of like you too." And then the next day, we we're at this Bible study, and then she calls me out to the deck looking over the Puget Sound. And she's like, oh, by the way, I could never marry you. And I'm like, well, shit, I wasn't even asking. But thanks for sharing your feelings on that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that kind of sucked. But a few years later, so it was not all a love story. Uh, so a man who likes a challenge, you took that as a challenge. Oh, and- shit, that is the damn truth. Yeah. Yes, because I, I had never had a girl tell me that. So if she's the first one, I'm like, well, you must be the one. <laughs> I have a similar story. First day of high school, 10th grade out here in Southern California. And I go into AP bio first day of school. And I see this young lady with an open seat next to her and she's attractive. So I sit down next to her and she turns to me and I could see her out of the, out of the corner of my eye turn to me. And I'm thinking, Oh yeah, here we go. She turns to me and she says, uh, can you please move? I was saving that seat for my friend. So I moved to the back <laughs> of the back of the class and I checked out of the class like three days later, but I ended up uh, dating her next year, junior year, ended up marrying her. And that is, that is Mrs. Doc, the mother of my three kids. So nice. like you, I, I like, a, I like a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Where in Southern California are you? So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. And so if you know, our listeners uh, across the country, around the world are familiar with the Valley, that's, that's referred to as the Valley. And uh, right now we're in Santa Clarita, which is just north of the San Fernando Valley. Okay. I lived in Orange County for during high school. So. Oh, okay. Where, did, where'd you go to high school there? Uh, uh, Woodbridge High School in Irvine, California. Irvine. Yep. Woodbridge. Yep. All right. So before we go to break, um, maybe we can touch upon what was the inspiration for doing the AT with the entire family? Who, who initiated that conversation? How did it, how did it go? And uh, when was that decision made? Well, this is kind of a, it's, it's a really awkward question to answer in a way if, if you're familiar with our family, because our family um, has developed a culture over the years of doing some hard things together. Um, so while we had never through hiked, like for example, I think we'd run three or four or five marathons together as a family, like full marathons, 26.2 miles, our youngest being at the age of six. Um, so, and I say that to just say kind of the culture of our family was when I got the idea, a lot of times it was me of saying like, Hey, there's this amazing experience, like running a marathon. It's on a lot of adults bucket list. And they think of like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to have these crazy low lows, these crazy high highs. And the feeling that I get when I cross the finish line, I want that. But then for some reason, we, we exclude our family from it. Now, because we kind of, I don't want to say stumbled onto it, but there was a little bit of stumbling where we discovered not only do our kids want to do those types of things with us, they enjoy them too. We kind of realized that we're all kind of in the same boat here. Like we all get the same things out of these experiences. So for us, when it came to the Appalachian Trail, and you ask, how did we decide to do it together? It would have been more weird for us to say, well, which who are we going to leave behind? And we're going to go on this epic adventure that we love. It's going to be the most exciting thing of our life. We're going to have these high highs and low lows. And kids, that's not a 
you know, you guys need to be playing video games instead because that's what's going to be more satisfying to you. <laughs> um, so it was kind of a natural thing for us just to think, oh, if I'm going to, if I'm going to love this thing, I'll bet my kids will find some value in it because we had learned that we're all kind of cut from the same cloth in a way, uh, not coincidentally. And so we invited them along and it all, it would have felt really weird to not include them. Um, but like I said, that was probably 15 to 18 years of adventuring and discovering that our kids were capable. We enjoyed having them and that it was worth it. And that there was an incredible benefit from accomplishing these, these things together when the adventure was done. Like when we finished the trip, going home it's like soldiers returning from war mm -hmm. that they're like they have this camaraderie we we experience that as a family and so much of what we had been through in like typical american family is so-and-so is playing video games so-and-so is listening to this music with their headphones and so-and-so dad's at work and you come home and everyone's on different pages and we're like oh everyone's totally disconnected and we all feel guilty and shitty and how can we bring the family together well, it was like when you go on a hiking trip with your friends or family, it doesn't matter. You come back or even war, this tragic thing, people come back bonded. Absolutely. So we decided that we just really wanted to leverage that type of experience for it just totally fit what we wanted. Okay. Fantastic. It is, it is uh, incredible getting this insight into your family. This is, uh, this is something. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into some of the other endeavors and uh, experiments uh, conducted by the Crawford family. And then we will, I promise, we will get into the details of the hike. Stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water, using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Yeah. 
This is Ben Crawford, author of 2,000 Miles Together and a member of the largest family to ever hike the Appalachian Trail. And you are listening to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Welcome back. We're talking to Ben Crawford, author of 2,000 Miles Together, Family of Eight on the Appalachian Trail. And we're going to get into the details of that hike. But before we do, I want to talk about a couple of other things the Crawford family has done. So, Ben, you mentioned uh, that you guys have done some marathons. How many, how many marathons have you done together as a family? I think it's uh, nine total. Wow. And, th- and that includes the ultra marathon. Uh, so maybe eight marathons and one ultra marathon. And I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm dumbstruck for a second here. Eight, eight marathons and one ultra marathon. I've done three marathons and I know okay. that the commitment to preparing and training for a marathon is just as great an achievement as the marathon itself, but it's very time intensive. I mean, you, you've got to do the miles in order to, to, to reach that level of fitness to, to be able to complete a marathon. So I'm wondering how do you complete eight marathons with a family of eight uh, or a family of seven? I imagine, you know, it, you know, one was probably born along the way. Yeah. Maybe two were born along the way. I don't know, but how do you, how do you conduct all the training? How, how does that work out logistically? Well, so, okay. So one little correction I'll make in terms of a typical training schedule, we okay. don't train how you typically do Okay. because uh, like the typical training schedule that I'm aware of is, you run crazy amounts of miles to a point where you're running almost like 20, 23 miles on your long days at the end. Correct. So that on the final day you're running 26 and you're just used to it. Well, to me that probably avoids the most amount of pain, but the whole reason we run the marathon is to experience the pain anyways. So we, the highest we ever got is 13 miles uh, before a marathon. Wow. In terms of training. So my mindset was like, if you can do 13, you can do 26. <laughs> it's just going to be hella painful, but it's like, well, that's what are you doing a marathon for anyway? So like, anyways, that was, which actually helps a lot because you're right. The training is so takes so much time. And that was actually one of the first things that made me realize I wanted to do it with my kids was how many hours did I want to be alone, not investing into them relationally you know, just for this kind of like bucket list type thing. Not that it's just a bucket list thing. I mean, I know it's for health and I don't want to minimize it that way, but why not if I could um, like make the time more efficient by accomplishing my goal and be accomplishing something with my child and building into their health and their confidence, doesn't that make more sense? That's just how it felt to me. So the first time we did it, it was with my son. He was eight years old and I had never run a marathon. I read Born to Run. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's Mm -hmm. just like, you read it and you're like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) why am I standing here? I should be running 60 miles today. Like these fucking Indians in South America. So (laughs) I, uh, I, I read the book. I got inspired and I was like, I want to start running to work. And back then I was taking my kids to work with me every day. So it's like, Hey, you want to run to work with me? It's three miles. Yeah. He did it. We both did it. We're like, Oh, three miles is like not that big of a deal. It's, I mean, um, the one thing I'll say, like we've had to learn little like tips and tricks that when we get into the hiking, we can talk about that. But talking running, if you're running fast and you're always yelling at kids to go faster, it's miserable for everyone, like no matter what. 
But so what we learned is as long as we could do whatever speed we wanted and walk whatever we wanted, the kids could do amazing distances. And even I could do amazing distances because I don't like being miserable and out of breath. Um, so we just had a lot of grace on ourselves and the kids. And that year we ran our first marathon and we didn't know, we had no idea if we'd finish it. We just started it. And our kind of rule was if we ever get to a point where we can't go any further, we'll just quit. It's like no big. And we just never quit. We just kept on going and we crossed the finish line. And the other kids saw us cross the finish line and they saw us get the pizza and the medals. And they were like, this looks amazing. Pizza and medals, who wouldn't want in on that? So they were begging me to do the next marathon. And the next marathon, I think it was three of them joined us. So then I had four kids that ran the marathon with me. And then my wife saw it and she had never been a runner, mm -hmm. but she had now her four of her kids have run a marathon. So she's like out of excuses. Um, so she joined us for the next one. And that's just, it just kind of became that type of thing that we started doing together. Yes. And you, you, I'm assuming just from the way you described it there, that you ran the course as a pack, you went through the course all together. You guys yeah, we, weren't, weren't spread out along the, along the, uh, the course. No. Um, I mean, it's funny. Like when, there's a playground, a couple of playgrounds on my, uh, my youngest always go play on the playground on the course, but we'll wait for them. And then, um, Every once in a while, a kid will get, it's changed over the years, like maybe out of sight, but mm -hmm. we, we start together and every marathon we've run, we've crossed the finish line holding hands, actually. Amazing. Tell me about the ultra marathon. How, that, how long was that? Where was it? That was this last year. It was in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, actually, not this last September because of COVID, but the September before. It was, the, it was man, talk about an incredible entry point to a... Um, an ultra marathon. This was just a wonderful experience where we have an ultra runner friend named Harvey Lewis, who's local that helped invited us and helped us get like registered and all this kind of stuff. And what it is, it's a, it's a 24 hour race. So it's a mile course where you're running this loop around this park for a mile and inside the park or inside the loop, there's all the tents set up where you can, you can run as many laps as you want. Mm -hmm. And you can take as many breaks as you want and you can eat food whenever you want. It's just like you just do as many as you can in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So it was just the coolest experience, like letting the kids basically enter this challenge where my wife and my two-year-old would stay at our tent for the most part. And then we would pass them, you know, every mile. So once every 10, 20 minutes, you'd pass them and say hi and they'd cheer mm -hmm. you on and the kids could sleep or not sleep or they'd go swim in the lake. And a, a ultra marathon is technically anything over 26.2 miles. Right. So my youngest, I think she was eight. She might've been nine at the time. Uh, no, she was eight. She did 40 miles. <clears throat> uh, that was the furthest she had ever gone. And then the rest of us did somewhere between 50 and 60. I did 60. Uh, the most anyone of us did was 60. <clears throat> um, so in that 24 hour period. Wow. That is, that's incredible. What an experience for an eight-year-old um, to say, you know, I've gone 40 miles in 24 hours. That kind of sets, sets up, sets that kid up to say, you know, if I put my mind to it, I can do anything. Yeah, it is kind of weird because they, we've run with other kids, other families see us running as a family. Cause we do, we run three days a week and, and they hear their friends or these people in the neighborhood say like, Oh, I could never run three miles. And it does sound really strange to them because they, in their mind, anyone can, should be able to run three miles. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, maybe they even have more confidence in these kids and these kids have in themselves because yeah, it's just not something maybe they deal with. I mean, they, we almost deal with it on the other side where, you know, we we almost have to hold them back a little bit. Not that they're super motivated, but we have to tell them the stuff that you would tell any athlete is like, Hey, take care of your body, take some rest days. If, if you're hurting like slow down, we almost have to, um, you know, push more on that side because the kids know that they can do it most of the time. Yeah. Let me ask what, after doing a 2000 plus mile hike and eight marathons and an ultra marathon, what, what is the confidence level of your kids? Well, you know, it's, I don't want to come across as being superheroes because the confidence level is very high in these types of activities, but it doesn't mean that they're confident about everything, you know, I mean, it's like when you ask a girl or a boy out, it doesn't fucking matter how many through hikes you've done. You know, you're like, <laughs> shit, I don't want to do this. This is scary. I wish this just happened and I didn't have to ask any questions. Uh, so there's like, you know, it's, there's still, um, they're that's working. A fair, that's, a, that's a fair point. They're working through typical childhood development stuff. And, and I am too, as an author and be like, Hey, are people going to like my book? And you know, um, am I going to say the right answer on this podcast? It's like, um, it does, it does help, you know, I mean, I see that they're, but just like everyone, they're battling their demons and they're showing up and they're facing them. So, but it's not a cure all, but I do think it is, um, as good as any education that I know how to give them. Mm -hmm. Ben, I want to put you at ease. There are very few wrong answers on this podcast. (laughs) All right. The only wrong answer is an uninteresting one. So we, we haven't hit that point yet with you. Well, I did sell this uh, answer I'm going to give at the end pretty hard that I was going to provide some amazing thing that I have yet to come up with. So they need to stay tuned, though, to hear the amazing thing. We have a little bit of time. You, you can still think of it. That's okay. All right. Hey, I want to talk about another experiment I heard that you conducted with your family, and that is the year with no rules. How does that work? And that, this was just recently. This was after the AT hike, Correct. Yes, it was 2019. 2019. So what are the ages of the kids um, when you started this year with no rules? So can I pause for a second? Absolutely. I want to ask you why you're asking this because I've had a lot of interviews and you're the first person that's asked about this. I forget where I came across it. If it was on a website or uh, if it was on the jacket of your book, but it, it jumped out at me. And just as a father of three, um, you know, I, I, I try and have some rules to kind of guide our lives by. And, uh, you know, we, we enjoy, well, I, I enjoy a little bit of structure. I know what, I want to know what to expect. And yeah. I, I just imagine that a year with no rules, not only for a family of five, but for a family of eight, yeah. what, what does that look like? And, and what, what did you learn about yourself and your, your, and your family? Yeah, well, I love that question. And it really... I mean, it's, it's as exciting to me to talk about as the trail, although not as glorifying as, you know, some of those larger accomplishments, but so I appreciate you asking it. Um, but yeah, you are the first person to ask it actually. Um, so, well, I guess to tell a little bit of background, as I already said, we grew up very religious, my wife and I. And Mm -hmm. so when we started raising kids, it was very, strict and authoritarian and the first thing we taught was obedience and order and kind of this submission and reverence and respect for authority um 
So there was, that was like what we were told to do. And everyone in our communities was raising their kids this way, which has its benefits. You know, there was a, there was a lot of order, but there was some drawbacks too. And as we experienced a pretty rocky exit from that spiritual community, basically we got excommunicated because we didn't fit in. Um, We started to see the underbelly to that type of authoritarianism uh, because that same authoritarianism relationship between parents and kids kind of existed between leadership and followers in the religious. So I was like a leader too, but I had leaders over me, but the same way, you know, it's just all these little, like this kind of pyramid scheme type thing where there's people above you and people below you. And, and we started to see the downsides of the, that type of authoritarianism where basically it had great short-term effects like peace of mind and simplicity and, you know, the kids do what you want and everyone seems to be kind of happy because parents know best. But in the long run, it seemed like a lot of the certain kids or personalities or time periods like would really not feel heard or valued and would basically try and flee the structure of the family unit and resist it later on because they didn't feel like they had a voice. So on our hike, our hike, um, became an incredible healing experience for us from this type of spiritual trauma that we were in therapy for, for three or four years. And we started to really change the way that we parented, even on the hike, um, to a point where the book really focuses on a lot of those parenting themes about letting go of control and being able to listen to your kids and not, because, you know, the, everyone would say like, well, rules are great. Um, you know, everyone needs them. They create order. But then there's this question like, well, who gets to create them? And what happens when a rule is really just, we don't, what we don't talk about as parents is we don't let our kids know a rule is just a glorified preference. That's called a rule. (laughs) You know, don't wear shoes in the fucking house. Well, why? Because I said so. That's why it's a rule. Well, it's not a rule over the Johnsons. Yeah. Well, I made it a rule here. Well, it's like, do I get to make up any rule I want or when does it exist? And we treat rules like there's this sacred thing when really they're a glorified preference. So I think the decision to quit rules for 2019 is it's not saying rules are bad, but we had what I would say is probably an unhealthy dependence upon them as parents and leaned on them uh, maybe in a way that where I always gravitated towards the simplicity of saying, do it. Why? Because I said so. I mean, I wouldn't say those words, but that's basically what I communicated. Mm -hmm. And it made it very hard to focus on my children's hearts to hear and listen to them and to treat them um, uh, and their opinion as as valuable as my own, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, the year was crazy of no rules. I mean, we documented these over videos and it's actually one of the books I want to write about was the transformation I went through. Uh, the first month was just absolute chaos. Uh, Everyone's doing their own thing. The house is messy. My son's playing video games nonstop. And we have, you don't realize how many rules you have until you start, until you take them away and you give up your authority. But what started to happen over the course of the year is my son who would play video games for eight hours in January would realize, wow, I'm not getting stuff done that I want to get done. And this video game is actually getting boring. And things that we used to have rules for, which is no video games, they started making decisions for themselves. He started saying, I don't want to play video games as much. I want to be more productive. I want to contribute more to the house. 
And we started to feel like that had more of a lasting impact on both their motivation and even our relationship than, I mean, the order that rules provides is great, but I think it can be sort of short-term because really you're just like forcing compliance. So that's when you have rules, you have all sorts of fancy ways of evading the rules too. Like kids find ways to play video games or they find ways to whatever your thing is, whether it's porn or candy or who knows, you know, they get, they, they get it done. They're doing whatever they want to do basically. (laughs) And the more rules there are, the more they have to hide. So yeah, it was, it was an experiment and tapping into our kids, helping our kids shape their own motivational structures themselves and um, trusting them and learning to maybe be more of a friend and a coach than a, I don't know, an authoritarian leader, which is maybe just a different type of leadership. Yeah. So, so take me through that, that uh, conversation on January 1st, 2019 kids, kids come on in here. Oh, I want to tell you something. I got some news for you. Uh, we're, we're not going to have any rules this year. You go ahead and do it, do what you want. Is that, is that how it went or how, how did that look? How did that sound? And well, and what was their reaction? That's what I want to hear. Their yeah, initial reaction. Pretty much. Well, there was initial reaction all over the place. It was shocking. You know, um, you know, there's six kids, there's six personality types um, and six different reactions. So like I said, my son, he saw, I mean, he saw blazes of glory. He's like the Xbox and the world is mine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the world is my oyster. Like it's, it was all positive at first. Um, and my daughter, uh, Eden, who is more, like prone to like order and consistency, she kind of freaked out a little bit. Cause she was like, well, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? Which is something that you have to wrestle with when you're 20 anyways, like when you leave the house. So we were just, she was doing it earlier, but she didn't like it uh, emotionally at first. But we saw like, I mean, to use both those two extreme examples, my son who, you know, loved not, and, and there was before this, very typically there was always tension around getting the rules followed. Okay. It's two hours of Xbox. Well, why not two and a half or turn it off, you know, or did you sneak it last night? All, I mean, so a rule doesn't even get anything done anyways. It's just kind of that highest order of motivation that you appeal to, to try and get something done. And now it was gone. So now he's playing video games till his eyes bleed. But then he realizes that like, Oh wow, the kitchen's kind of a mess. And like, oh, am I going to like make his dinner for him and be his little bitch if he's not contributing to the house at all playing video games? Because if it's not rules, rules doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want because I'm not going to do whatever for him. <laughs> you know, so it started to become like more complex and relational. And eventually, I mean, because we started doing these weekly meetings because when you don't have the rules, you still like people still wanted some sort of order. So we started creating order and the kids actually started creating their own rules. Like, because they realized they wanted them. And so we had this highly, like, pretty efficient dialed in system of chores with like rewards and punishments and fucking this and that. And it was, it worked. But then we did away with it all January 1st. Uh-huh. So then it's like, and everyone's like, yes, like, I don't have to do chores. And it's like, well, I'm not doing them all, you know? So then they're like not getting done. And then people are like, well, this kind of sucks. Like, who's going to do the chores? And we're like, what was the time frame there? What was the time frame from, yes. This is awesome to reality sinking in about how this is going to all kind of fit together. I mean, it's really hard to answer that because it's six people over months, but, um, uh, you know, so so many different stories, but 
so uh, on the video series, I documented it because I think like every week or every month we recorded, we interviewed the kids asking them how they're feeling and what their highs and lows were mm-hmm. for the month and stuff. Um, and it was a couple of years ago, but um, I mean, it was with some things it was overnight, you know, or weeks like, cause the house, the kitchen just got, it was like shitty, you know, like it was messy. There's dishes stacked everywhere. And um, my wife who would more, be more likely to try and tackle it all herself because it drove her crazy mm-hmm. wasn't able to do it um, because it's too much and so then she eventually had to quit and then it really started to stack up and no one wants to do it and there's no rules so no one has to do it mm-hmm. so then it's like well shit we need to have a meeting and figure out what to do about this like and we'll just everyone has to agree i guess you know so we kind of created like i said it's weird when people think no rules we think no order, but there's a lot like for here with you and me, you and I are having a fun conversation. We're both learning, we're growing. Hopefully we're either making some money or getting some followers or educating some folks or whatever our goals are. But what are the rules here? We don't have any, you and I don't make rules. Right. Like, you know, we're, we're respecting each other, but the best things in life oftentimes don't happen because of rules. But I think with kids, we tend to, because they existed, it was just the easiest thing to depend on a rule and just lean on it maybe a little too um, more than we needed to mm-hmm. just because it's always there. So it's easier to be like, like I said, there's a rule to clean your room. There's a rule to no shoes in the house. There's a rule that you need to do the chores. And we wanted our kids to really wrestle with those motivations and decide for themselves, do they want to have a clean house and how do you get that done? And how do you negotiate that with other humans so that everyone's getting their needs met? It's, it's complicated stuff. Yeah. But we do it every day. And so was there a, did you see a shift from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation with your kids? Yeah, because, um, well, we start having these meetings and we start developing essentially rules, you know, maybe we didn't call them that, but like, I guess guidelines. I mean, it's kind of, we didn't have a rule that said no rules. So like we could actually, we just did away with them on January 1st, but people were allowed to like reconstruct them if they agreed to it, Mm -hmm. but they started. um, And this is a theme of our parenting and of the book is that if you force a kid to do something, it works in the short term sometimes, but I've never seen it work well in the long term in terms of a best case scenario. But if you can get a kid to either love learning or love hiking or love contributing to the kitchen being clean, then there's this magical thing that happens where it's way less energy for everyone. I don't have to babysit them. I don't have to fight them all the time because they believe in it themselves. So I'm much more excited about trying to it let go and have the patience to let kids discover that and model what some of these passions, um, what the potential is, you know, so like for school, we don't make our kids go to school. Um, but they saw me write this book and they see me, um, you know, on podcasts and see me selling it and they see people buying it. They see people excited. And my kids now, like I have to imagine in the back of their head, they kind of want to write a book, you know, so they're willing to do take, get the education that is required to do that. But it's, but if we were to say like write an essay a week right now on, and when we pull some topic out of a hat, right. uh, China in the 19th century, something they don't give a shit about. No one gives mm-hmm. a shit about. Yeah. Except no, for no relevance. No, to their lives. no offense to the Chinese that lived in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> then yeah, they're, they're not tuning into the podcast. They're not tuning in. Okay, no. good. Um, 
then I don't know. I just feel like I've signed up for a battle to try and force my, to act as a cop as a parent instead of a friend or instead of someone that, I I just think it's a shame. Cause like I said, if I was with you and if I want to motivate you, I'm going to tell you a kick-ass story of the AT and how it changed my life and show you some cool pictures and maybe share with you what I learned and how I cried and how I just got excited. I'm not going to make a rule for you. You know, like, okay, doc, you need to do the AT now, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to not let you play your Xbox, (laughs) you know, but with kids, for some reason, I think we just, we resorted to that. Um, And I, I have to believe that there's something better out there. Um, Not that we're, I'm not against the rules. I want to be clear on that. Like, I don't think rules are bad. I, I just want to put them in their place maybe. And with, in our life and our family, they'd gotten out of hand. Mm -hmm. And so that was 2019. Are there, are there rules now in 2021 in the Crawford household? Yeah. Or or is it, is it no, they're no longer rules. They're just agreed upon family norms. Well, I'll tell you what it did. um, It did change our definition of them because I'm one of those people that believes there's no like moral rule. Uh, You know, I mean, you're like, well, you got to go to speed them. I'm like, no, you don't actually like you can go five over. Well, what happens? Well, you you could get a ticket, but as long as you're okay with paying the consequence, you you don't have to do anything. Like I'd rather have the conversation of what the pros and cons of something are. Um, So even in 2020, when we reinstituted rules, you know, we, our kids had a bit of a peek behind the, you know, the wizard of Oz's curtain in a way. And they knew that there's this kind of like, um, power, um, like it, they don't really exist. Like, uh, you know, we make them up and that's okay, but I'd rather just let them know that we do that. And, and we had a lot more conversations about agreements and, and we did kind of, it is just, can we just be honest? It's, it is way simpler and easier sometimes to make the rules. Like, so I don't have a problem with it. Um, but like I said, with someone like you, that's interested in it, my first step would be to challenge and say, well, what rules can you get rid of that are not helping you out that are not necessary? And I would just have someone start there. Um, so yeah, we, we did implement them back because it made our life easier, but I think they're more open to discussion now than ever. Yeah. And just so you know, my, my three kids are adults now. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go downstairs after this podcast and tell Mrs. Doc, Hey, there's no more rules. (laughs) (laughs) You can do that. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, She'll look at me and say, what are you talking about? And I'll say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. What, what did you learn about yourself uh, as a father, as a parent, uh, with a year with no rules? And what would you learn about the family? What were the takeaways? With myself? Oh, well, shit, everything I'm telling you right now, a lot of it I learned that year. You know, that rules are just preferences that, um, I mean, the first couple of weeks was tough. Like I felt my brain shutting down. Like it was like I was in a third world country, but I was in my living room like things felt chaotic. And I think at that time it would have been so tempting to just pull the plug kind of like the first week on a through hike. You're just like, Mm -hmm. fuck this. This is cold. My feet hurt. This isn't worth it. There's no ending. There's no benefit. Like, um, so I, I had those feelings where it was just chaos and it really forced me to wrestle with, uh, that chaos. 
and those feelings that I had and why I make rules. Because if I'm making rules for eight people to follow just so I don't experience my quote unquote chaos, you know, you can start to see how it can become a bit problematic from a dictatorial dictatorship or a, a, where abuse can start to happen is I'm like, well, I don't like it when people are loud past eight. But what happens when some of my kids' best moments happen between nine and 10? Are they entitled to their relationships or who gets to decide that and why? And we really wrestled a lot with that. So I learned like to really sit with some of my, I don't know, I guess I'll just call them my issues, Mm -hmm. you know, and realize that, oh, I'm not very good at handling certain things and that's okay. But also it was a, it was um, exercise in nonviolence because as a parent, it's so easy. I'm not even talking about spanking, but just that tone of voice that says obey or else, you know, which is kind of what rules lend themselves to like every rule has to have a consequence. Otherwise it's not really a rule. And that was a normal thing, like to exercise violence around our house by saying, you are going to be grounded. You're going to have this taken away or this type of thing. Like I'm the boss around here. And instead trying to uh, just taking that tool out of my tool belt and saying like, I'm going to really try and grow into being the type of person that can accept reality, accept my children, accept the world the way it is and not try and always change it to be how I want. Uh, so that's how I changed, mm-hmm. which was a, it was just a huge step in my development. I mean, you know how you talk, there's people that say that they go on a through hike and they go to a different country and then they mature and change because they see a new way of living. Mm-hmm. That happened in my living room. Like I didn't have to go to China. My, <laughs> my bedroom became the worst parts of like, you know, the world. It was like a third world country where it was just like, I was thrust into chaos but you don't go to China and you're like, I'm going to teach all you guys some manners, you know, how to speak American, (laughs) you know, and live my way. You kind of accept it on its terms. And I, I, that's what I had to do with my kids. I mean, they have their own little way of seeing the world Mm -hmm. and it's, it's beautiful if, if I could see it as that. Mm -hmm. Do you see similar growth with your kids? (sighs) Yeah. I mean, there's, um, they did experience those types of same lessons that I did. I know you weren't saying similar growth in terms of the exact same lesson, but I did see a lot of growth because like I said, where my son was like video games are awesome. My experience when it comes to prohibition is when you, when things were prohibited in my life, uh, certain behaviors or activities, it only made me want to do them more and think that they were more awesome And I don't know if they really were that awesome or not, or whether it was just the prohibition or the allure or the forbiddenness or the lack of access that really made it start to seem larger than life and really special. So what we started to see is that our kids started to become less infatuated with certain, because we are strict, I think. We were like, you know, like no candy. I mean, not no candy period, but like we would have candy on Friday and Saturday, but we weren't stocking like, M&Ms everywhere on weekdays. And then they start going to the grocery store and they buy candy whenever they want now. So there's, mm-hmm. and with six kids, you have candy everywhere all the time <laughs> and no rules about it. So they could eat a bag of M&Ms right before dinner time. That used to be a rule and now it's not. So they're like, this is incredible. I can eat a bag of M&Ms right before dinner time. And they do, they did it. Like, 
but you see like, you know, as adults, at some point, I'm assuming you don't need a bag of animals. I mean, well, we're talking to hikers, so we're a different breed here. But well, I've got I've got a trail analogy right now for you because as you're, as you're as you're talking about this, I'm thinking this. You know, I thought uh, on my first long distance hike, I said I said, you know what, a king size payday bar has all the calories I need to get me through through lunch on on a through hike, and so I ate day after day after day after day king size payday bar for lunch. The last time I ate a king size payday bar was on that hike. I cannot stand paydays anymore. They yep. used to be the best, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking similar experience here. You, you, you. Yep, exactly. So, and if someone would have said instead, "You're not allowed to eat payday bars," you'd probably still thinking about them, you know. <laughs> yeah. But when you work when you work it through and you're allowed to have access, I think I, I've learned to trust that kids can make those decisions themselves about a lot of things. You know, maybe not everything but more than we had given them credit for. So yeah, I did see them mature in massive ways as they came to all sorts of conclusions about candy and video games and cleaning. And they started to uh, want some of these uh, restraints in their life and start to create them themselves. Or, or, and this is the ultimate win, is they started to come in to us and ask for help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which is something I'm, I've been self-employed now or unemployed or retired or something for close to 10 to 20 years in terms of not having a boss. And if for people that are entrepreneurs or retired, you know, motivation is a struggle. Like I'm in my thirties and I'm struggling with sleeping in with getting off YouTube so that I can get my projects done because I have no boss, no one telling me. And um, my kids were dealing with that when they're 12, 13, 14, they're dealing with those same issues. And I was so happy to see them dealing with those things 15 years before I had the chance to do it. Yeah. And I'm a bit older than you. So I just want to reflect a little bit on the evolution of parenting as I've seen it over the decades. I know that growing up in the, in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, you know, I was on my own and we did a lot of stuff. Uh, my friends and I, we, we'd wander wander all over the, all over the place. And, and you know, there's no cell phones back then. We didn't check in with people. We'd be back in time for dinner and, and, you know, hope everything went all right. And, uh, parents were, were fine. Well, both my parents were working. So, I mean, we were latchkey kids. Um, and that has kind of evolved over the decades into parents making every single decision for their, for their kids. Uh, we've heard about helicopter parents. We've heard about uh, the new fad of being backpack parents. If you can get that uh, that that picture in your mind of the 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 parents sitting literally on the on the uh, well, not, I guess not literally, but uh, figuratively on on the backs of their students, you know, whispering in their ear for every decision that they have to make. And so you end up with kids who can't make any decisions on their own. And so this is kind of a throwback in a way to those those. Uh, earlier methods of, you know, the kids have to figure some stuff out and make their own decisions and are empowered to do so. So very interesting, fascinating. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Hey, we're going to take another quick break. And as promised, when we get back, we're going to get to the hike, get to the details of the hike. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Brett Gravlin from Team Curl. You're listening to the John Freakin' Mir Pod. All right, welcome back. 
All right, Ben, here it is. This is the moment that uh, I know our listeners have been waiting for. I'm very excited to talk to you about the actual hike itself. So from the moment you guys decided, let's do this as a family, how much in advance was that of the actual hike? Man, that's a good question. I have a feeling that we probably started, we put it on the calendar maybe eight months before, which I think is like, one of the first steps in planning an adventure, in my opinion, is you got to stick it on the calendar and make it real. Yeah. As soon um, as you publish it, it becomes real. Yeah. So that's probably when we started really. And then, you know, six months ahead to four months ahead, I think is when we were like, Oh, this is, that's when we started buying stuff. Yeah. And that to me is like, I'm not going to be, I'm not wasting my money. So if I'm buying the sleeping bag, we're gone. Right, right. Yeah, there's one thing to publish it, but as soon as you start spending money on it, then it then it really becomes real. Oh, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> and so, tell tell me about that. How how do you outfit eight people? I mean, that's that's got to cost some money. Did you get Jen getting some sponsorships on this or no? No sponsorships. Oh, not wow. at this time. Um, I mean, it's pretty ghetto in a way. I mean, well, it's weird, you know, it's like we call it ghetto, but we're buying stuff from REI. Like, so when you hear these stories of like Grandma Gatewood who did it wearing Keds, you know, the AT, Mm -hmm. she was the first woman, I think, that ever hiked it. You're like, whatever I have from REI, the shittiest shoe from REI is literally 10 times better than At least, yes, right. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, it's all about perspective, Um, but... I do like to think I'm pretty efficient and my wife is highly organized. So, you know, it's spreadsheets that she created of um, like, I mean, it's basically like one of the things we have to do is we have to standardize a, a setup that works for everyone, you know? So it's like, okay, backpack, two pairs of socks, two pairs of underwear, um, a shell pants, shell jacket, insulating jacket, one pair of shorts, one t-shirt. And I'm fine if kids want to monkey around and add to that or whatever. But in terms of what we're going to buy, we almost have to just like look across. It's like, okay, everyone needs a shell. Um, That's going to be standard. You know, we're not doing, I don't know, people have lightweight and ultralight and a million different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So then we'll, you know, wait for a sale or look at REI garage sale or buy six shells somehow, you know, but a lot of stuff we've had over the years but, you know, the kids at our ages, it's like they're all growing and changing. It's like sizes every year. It's like a new size. So, you know, it's yeah, a lot of clearance your, shopping. With your kids, I mean, in their ages, if you buy something too too far in advance of the trip, they'll about mm-hmm. grown it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Crazy. But it's like, I guess it's just you break it down into steps and you're like, okay, everyone's going to need a shell. And it's, it's not um, – it's not impossible. It just takes a few steps. You know, you you need to create the list. You need to shop for it, try it on, and then you're good to go. So it it took some time and a little Mm -hmm. bit of researching on some things, but we had time to prepare. How many tents? Two tents. So we had a four man tent and we had a two man tent. So total of six persons tents with eight people. (laughs) So but, you know, it's weird, like, our group was, like I said, highly efficient. And that two tents for eight people is, it's almost like ultralight. I mean, these are not ultralight tents. But when you start breaking down the weight per person on an efficiency level, 
it actually is pretty efficient. So who carried the tents? Um, geez, man, you're asking me specifics that I'd had. I mean, basically, uh, man, I think my son might have. Well, it's like someone carries the tent, then someone else carries the tent poles, and then I carried the two man tent, maybe. Uh, all the gear was kind of like split up by whatever was the most efficient. So one daughter, my daughter Dove, for example, she would carry the dinners, okay. and she would. And we learned this early on. That's right. Because you, because you're Henry Ford. You're the Henry I'm Henry Ford. Ford. I'm Henry, Henry Ford. Ford of the A of the AT. You've got it all broken down. Assembly line. That's right. So memory. Assembly. My 12 year old was responsible for breakfast. Eden, my 15 year old, was responsible for lunches. Dove, my 16 year old, was responsible for dinners. So if you wrap your mind around this, what this looked like, a lot of people think that what we did was amazing because they say oh, I could never do that as a parent. You must have like been busting your ass, like babysitting these kids basically. But what they didn't realize was the kids did so much stuff because they could. They learned it even on the trail. So we'd go to a town and Eden would do the laundry and then they, we'd do a resupply and the three of them would go into a grocery store and we'd say, okay, three nights, four days. And Dove would buy dinners, all the dinners. And Eden would buy all the lunches and Mary would buy all the breakfasts and Seven would buy all the snacks. And we'd be like, 15 minutes, go. And they do their thing. We come back. Now, sometimes we got some shitty meals. <laughs> uh, but we all learned. You know, it's like that was the glory of it. But it wasn't two people, the parents, buying food for eight people for four days and three nights. That wasn't how it was. Um, the kids contributed a ton, but we just broke it down into little, little so bite-sized like segments like that. So then Dove, would she'd buy the food. She would carry the dinners in her pack so she knew where everything was. And she, that was her kind of like group weight that she carried. And then she would cook the dinners. And so it's just like, and we did not start the trail this way, by the way. These are little uh, systems that got evolved along the way. So we'd roll into a campsite and um, Seven would, uh, well, actually Seven would edit the video. So uh, Memory and Eden would start setting up the tent. Flea would go and gather firewood. Dove would set up the stove. Uh, Memory would go and get the water. Uh, Cammy, my wife, was usually with the baby, the two-year-old. Uh, I would be like either starting the fire or like looking at the guide and the map books, like plan our next day. Everyone's just kind of like doing their little thing. And it's weird because I think a lot of people saw us with kids and would say like, oh, that's like uh, harder than hiking without, uh, without kids. Mm -hmm. But but yet, you know, in 30 minutes, the tent's set up, the, the water's there, the dinner's done, video's being edited by my son on the laptop, and I'm planning out the next day. And I look at them, they roll in, one person rolls in, they have to set up their tent. They have to walk fucking quarter mile to go get water. Then they have to like start cooking dinner. And you get your head down on your pillow by the time all that's done, you can't even journal. You know, writing two paragraphs seems like it's impossible. So there, you know, I... It's cool because it, um, there was a glory in the, in the numbers, you know, having the kids did not just make it harder that yes, there was a level of complication sure. and complexity that was challenging, especially when you start talking about emotional stuff, but, but there was also a beauty. It was just, I don't know. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Many, many hands light work, right? 
Yeah, I think if you let it, you know, and that's that's one of the, you know, this is before the no rules. So I was in this mindset that, oh, I need to cook the dinner because what if it spills? You know, you, there goes eight people's dinner. Like uh, we don't have like a Walmart. You can just zip over to and grab a new one. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I better do all the cooking so my daughter doesn't spill. Well, once I trusted her with it, I don't, she might've spilled it once the entire five months, but maybe it was not, not at all. Um, so I had to learn to like, let go of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, Ben, I think it's fair to say that not everybody who heard about this endeavor was necessarily in favor of it or on board with it. And you faced some, some pretty stiff criticism in, in some, some ways. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to mention when we talk about criticism, what we mean is like, like online, mm-hmm. uh, like people that didn't know us, you right. know, which is where crit- some, a lot of criticism can really flourish to our face. Our friends and family and other hikers seemed highly supportive. They didn't always understand what the heck we we're doing, but you know, people online, I think, um, I think, well, we, and we're putting out YouTube videos five days a week while we're hiking. And we, our method of storytelling was kind of to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we gave a kid a camera and we're like, talk about how you're feeling. And the kid's been walking in the heat or cold for six hours. And they're like, life sucks. I hate it. And we filmed that, and put it up on YouTube. And we're like, this is great content because it's what through hikers feel. But people are seeing kids now going through the cold and they're seeing our two-year-old and they're seeing all sorts of parenting disasters and mistakes, which is pretty normal in my experience. Like that stuff happens and you know, and they don't know us, they don't really care about us. So they're spouting off their opinions and it, it got kind of scary and kind of hard sometimes to know how to deal with. Uh, I mean, we became mascots in a way for God knows what, you know, mm-hmm. for some people we became heroes to some people we became villains. And I think I read somewhere that uh, you even had an encounter. Was it with child protective services at some point? Yep. Yeah. We had an encounter with them and two other, two or three other government agencies. Um, That was the scariest. And you know, it's uh, they just showed up and we were in the Smoky Mountain National Park and we were waiting to get picked up by my parents and, this police officer, sheriff type person with a gun on their side uh, shows up with two other ladies. And I thought they were from the park service, like coming to congratulate us or see if things were okay or offer us pancakes or I don't know what I was hoping for, but it wasn't (laughs) what they did, which was say, we need to ask you a few questions. We need to separate you from your kids and fill out this paperwork. And essentially, I mean, they didn't say this, but I know how it works is there, trying to see if we're fit parents and if we should be separated from our kids immediately for an indefinite amount of time. Uh, The irony of that experience was, so they're like checking off this paperwork. And one of the questions is, does the parents provide adequate and safe sleeping arrangements for the children? Well, the night before, literally a hundred yards behind us, we spent the night on the floor of the public women's restroom like a public government rest stop restroom. So it's not only is it a bathroom, it's like the worst of the worst bathrooms. Mm-hmm. So it, it's probably the most unsanitary sleeping conditions I've slept in in my entire life. And I'm, I'm, it wasn't actually that bad. 
but it's a concrete floor of a woman's bathroom. <laughs> yes. And they're asking me if they're trying to evaluate if I'm a good parent, you know? And I'm like, well, it was 40 degrees warmer than outside, which was 17 degrees. So how do you answer that? You yeah. know, comparatively, <laughs> the alternative was much exactly. worse. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a sticky situation that ended without incident. Um, they were really nice people that were just doing their job and following up on a protocol. Like they had to, someone called them. And I guess when someone calls, they have to check up and we had enough viewers and enough people were angry and upset about our decisions that they showed up and it was scary, but not much came of it. And we got a little smarter after that about delaying our videos so that people wouldn't know where we are. And it's just kind of sad because I don't know, specifically they got called, I think because of an incident where I uh, flicked my two year old son on the mouth and it, it was a parenting decision I made on the fly that I regretted making that I wish I wouldn't have made. I mean, this is when I told you that we, um, took a year off rules. A lot of it was for me to just learn alternatives to violence that I had uh, been modeled and taught and used my entire life. And, and we talked about this on YouTube because not because I wanted to be a hero for doing it, but because I want to tell people this is who we are and this is real. But, you know, when you do that on YouTube, telling a story about what happens on a through hike with the family, and then you get the government called on you and your kids threatened to be taken away well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that anymore online. Uh, but it doesn't automatically change the type of guy I am. I'm still in transformation. So it, it's unfortunate because I really want it to be more honest, but I guess, you know, we just learned, well, we got to be smarter about what we share too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and but the book, I was able to talk about a lot of that in the book, like more honestly, right. At right. that time. And I know you had uh, some self doubt, at the beginning, as I, I read in the intro about, uh, you know, how your kids would respond to you, would they talk to you? So let me ask, let's just get the, 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 the 600-pound gorilla out of the way here. Do the kids still talk to you? They do. I mean, one of them isn't talking to me now, but for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a lot of teenagers in the house, and we're always working stuff out. But uh, so, so, no, the kids still do talk to me. And, yeah, the thing that I was probably the most afraid of was – you don't finish a through hike by being the most sensitive individual ever. You know, you have to harden yourself in moments like there's rain and there's snow and, and everyone else is sitting at home eating McDonald's, watching Netflix, all your friends are. And you're like, I'm here. This is a good idea, right? Yeah, it is. You, you know, you tell yourself these things and you have to almost like numb your physical, your body's saying like run inside, don't leave the shelter. And you're like, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do it. You have to like push through on the hard days again and again and again. You're like, you're telling yourself, you're almost numbing these certain voices in your head. And one of my fears was what happens if the voices I numb are my children's, you know, because kids complain, like we all complain. I mean, that's one of the fun things about through hiking is bitching about mm -hmm. the weather and your feet and the tortillas or whatever. It's like, you know, a lot of times all we do is bitch. It's just like kind of fun to do. Um, and yeah, so it was really challenging to just ask this question of like, 
I don't know, are we going to push the kids too hard? How are we going to listen? And how can I be around the kids and deal with a certain amount of complaining that comes naturally with any childhood development and yet know how to listen when it's the right kind of complaining that, Oh, I need to do something about it. Either go to the dentist or get off the trail or quit the hike altogether or take a zero day or I mean, shit, you know, 161 days times six kids times however many hours. I mean, there's literally thousands of decisions, you know, Mm -hmm. bee, bee stings and, um, blisters and I mean, barfing and, you know, stuff. Right. And so you said uh, 161 days that, that is, uh, the duration of your trip. Yeah. We started March 1st and we ended August 9th. So we finished five months and nine days after we started. Okay. That's, that's respectable time for anybody. It was a family of eight. It was clipping along. Uh, we were, our schedule, uh, made it so that we were kind of under a deadline and we were, uh, I mean, we finished very quickly for that year in that class. I think I forget, I wrote in the book, but I feel like we were like number three, like our, um, registration at Mount Katahdin was, uh, like number three hundreds, you know? So I think maybe a thousand people finished that year. So we were in the first third of people that finished. Okay. And so you, you finished at Katahdin. So you were a northbound hike. Uh, yes, we started in Georgia. We went northbound for that 161 days. We had a total of 13 zero days, which is not much. Okay. No, our, not at all. Our that was longest question. So you're reading my mind. Keep going. Yeah, our longest stretch uh, was 53 days without zeros. I am not bragging about this, by the way. That this was very strenuous and uh, very difficult. So I would not recommend that actually. Uh, this once again was a byproduct of our schedule, which I don't want to get into completely because it's, it's just a complete side topic, but we decided that we wanted to be done by August 9th for a uh, event that happened afterwards for mm-hmm. the kids. So, so we were under this pretty tight deadline, um, which meant for that 161 day time period, our family averaged 13.5 miles every single day, even including the zeros which means that with 13 days off, we're actually doing more than 13.5 miles, um, which is a half marathon a day, every day. So if you can do a half marathon, you can do a marathon. You can do a full marathon. I know that from talking to you. You're paying attention. That's right. Yep. (laughs) So brutal. It was brutal, but it was, uh, we were, we turned into machines. Um, You know, we started in winter. It was one of the coldest winters uh, in the last 20 years is what I heard. So, you know, I don't know what you imagine when you hear about Georgia in March, but I pictured like peach trees, maybe it's a little like, uh, you know, a little chilly at night. Uh, I was not picturing 17 degrees and zero degrees uh, at night wind chill and, you know, snow and hail and freezing rain. So um, a lot of people are a year quit. And the cold was the hardest, but you know, the weather, it changes and we didn't quit. We kept on going. Uh, you know, we heard the advice that is fairly common and through hiking community, which is not to quit on a bad day. And there was some bad days, uh, but we kept on going and the weather warmed up and we busted our asses the first day, you know, just killing it 
and we hiked as we got started as early as we could, woke up at 5 a.m., uh, hiked till as late as we could, and we did eight miles. Like it was half of what we needed to do every day. And it felt like we were going as fast as we could, full speed ahead. By the end, we're doing 20 mile days, and it felt like we were taking it easy. It felt like, I mean, it, we would stop for two hours for lunch and swim and then be done at 5 p.m. for burgers and do kill 20 miles in a day. So, you know, that's the glory of through hiking is your body changes, the weather changes. Right. I imagine you were having that same conversation that every through hiker has on the first day. And that is, you know, what the hell am I doing out here? This is not going to work. I'm, how could I, I didn't even get very far and I'm dying. Yeah. And if you're expecting to, to uh, be a through hiker the day you start, you know, it's not, it's the wrong thing. Like we go out there to become through hikers and over the five months we became that type of person, but we did not start that way. And for me, I'm kind of a change junkie. And I, I went out there to be, to become a better dad, to become a stronger human, um, to become more lean. And we saw that with our kids and myself. Now I'm going to, I'm going to put a little word association with you, but before we get to that, you mentioned earlier in a comment about the emotional hardships that uh, you experienced out on the trail. Do you, any of those, I'm sure that they, they come to mind. Uh, do you care to share any, an, an example of uh, some of those hardships? What was the context that I said that in? Do you remember? Um, I think we were talking about, uh, all the happy times on the trail and what you, what you learned, but also, you know, there, you weren't saying that there weren't moments of, uh, difficulty. In fact, yeah. extreme difficulty. So yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't sure what you were getting at, but I, I, I was curious. Yeah, no, I, cause I, I remember saying that too. Well, you know, the, the hardest emotional times I think were asking these questions, like with the kids, like if they, how much to push them, and how much freedom to give them, like if they wanted to quit um, and really dealing with their motivations. Like, because I had this feeling like deep down, most parents I know, we know how to use certain tips and tricks to get what you want. Like the kid's crying and you're like, uh, okay, listen, if you shut up for the next five minutes, I'll give you a bag of candy. <laughs> and the kid will shut up, right? Like there's always like little things like that where you're like, or if you want to go the other route, you're like, I'm going to, kick your ass when we get home. If you don't, you know, like all these little things, dads whisper in the back of churches, like growing up, this is like, this was a common thing. And, but those things only work. Like you can't have a kid hike 2000 miles promising them candy every five minutes. You know, you have to find something different, something more robust and something deeper. The kid has to decide that they want to do it themselves. I think, or otherwise I think you'll break the kid or cost possibly your relationship for the rest of your life. That's what I was worried about. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That was the, the biggest emotional difficulty for me was always wondering that is, okay, so I'm a through hiker and okay, I can write a fucking book uh, and sell a few copies, which I wasn't even planning on doing at the time actually. But, um, you know, maybe we'll have our moment of fame and the truck will write an article about us. But then if my kids hate me, because I forced them to do something and ultimately they didn't want to do, but I tricked them into thinking they do because I offered them corn syrup. Is that worth it? That can't be, you know, that, and of course I'm asking that rhetorically, but that, that isn't worth it for me. So 
but there was a lot of introspection as, I mean, all you're doing is walking every damn day and thinking about this kind of stuff for me and wondering because it's so unusual. It's one thing if a ton of people are doing it now, it's, what's kind of weird is we send our kids to school or you let them play video games all day and no one wonders so much about the effects of that because everyone's doing it. So it's just accepted. But when you're doing something unusual like this, it, if you're wrong, I knew we would be made a target of either by ourselves or our friends or culture, internet critics, or worst of all, our kids. So yeah, that was probably the most emotionally difficult thing was maintaining my kids' freedom, but yet still doing the hardest thing of our life together. For, all, for probably all eight of us is probably the absolute hardest thing of our life. Right, right. Wow. So how do you convince yourself that, you know, I, I, I'm not the type of guy, at least, you know, post my religious years where I can say, oh, 100% shadow of, a, shadow of a doubt, that kicked ass and was the right decision. Like, shut up, little kid. Like, I know better. Like, this is good for you. Like, I can't say that, uh-huh. you know, but yet you almost have to have that type of arrogance a little bit to like leave the shelter and walk into the rain. Like you have to believe it's right or better or something, you know? So like, that was hard. I cannot wait to get into your mind and read that book. (laughs) This is going to be great. So, you know, at the beginning of this episode, I read off, you know, some of what was on that book jacket and we went through a a little bit of a list and I want to play a little word association with you or, or, or a phrase association. And I want to go back to that, that opening and run some of these terms by you. And I want you to just give me a, uh, give me your thoughts on it. Um, what, what jumps out at you from, from the trip on this? So let's start with snowstorms. Snowstorms are scary, but they can be overrated um, in terms of their danger. Like shit, that, that could sound really bad, I guess. But you know, like you hear snowstorm and you hear turn around. But if you're smart and you know that you're going on a marked trail and if you have the right equipment, one of the safest things can be to walk through it and to go, I think. Um, and now the Smoky Mountain National Rangers Park Rangers would not want to hear me saying that. But um, also my kids became my heroes that day as we, um, I watched them take on one of the biggest challenges of their life. Okay. How about... Uh... Lyme disease. That sounds like a fun one. Yeah, that's a little confusing. This is going to be a little anticlimactic, but we, everyone freaks out about Lyme disease in this area. And I I wasn't familiar with it because I'm from the West Coast and I I never heard it talked about out there. So, but people make a big deal about it up out here and, and maybe rightfully so, but it just wasn't on my radar. So we, you know, you check for ticks, you do your thing, you try and act responsible. And then even then one of my daughters seemed to show some kind of symptoms. So we got antibiotics and then I think it, it's one of those things that you never really know. I think if you had it or if it's gone, at least I don't know how to really check that. So she did her antibiotic thing and it, it ended up being a non-issue for us. Okay. Well, I, I'd rather have it be anticlimactic than uh, than the opposite. Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, no, it's one of those things that sounded scary, I guess, for the book cover. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about river crossings? Any epic river crossings? Uh, every river crossing is epic when you have an Apple MacBook Pro in your backpack. Uh, 
maybe you thought I was going to say child safety, but I was more concerned about my, <laughs> my laptop shit. When you have a laptop, a $2,000 laptop in your backpack, it makes you rethink every step that you're taking. Uh, How'd you waterproof of, that bad boy? Oh man, we're talking, um, I don't remember the brand name of the case, but we're talking some sort of waterproof case with a garbage bag with another garbage bag. So I'm one of those triple safety guys when it comes to that type of stuff. Belt, um, and, no. sus- belt and suspenders for you, my friend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, river crossings are more daunting mentally than they were in actual real life. I mean, it, in one sense, when you love dry shoes and socks like I do, it sucks to walk through a river, period. But it's the, also the type of thing where when we research the trail ahead of time, you can hear about the river crossings in Maine and see a few pictures and stress out about it for literally five months. And then it happens in 10 minutes and it's like no big deal. And you're like, oh, that was what I was stressing out about for five months. So I don't, we had to be kind of smart and we had to shuttle kids across a few of them. Uh, but no, by the time you get there to almost any challenge on the Appalachian Trail, I think you'll be prepared for it. Yeah. Life lesson right here. And I hope that uh, Ben was not going to use this for his pro tip, but worrying about something is usually worse than the actual thing. So. Shit. You just Sorry. took my pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I can't deliver on the promise that it's going to be as amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, you will. I know you've got something amazing in store for us. Hang on. Okay. How about uh, toothaches? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a pretty standard thing in the regular world. Uh, a kid gets a toothache for us. It's like, okay, call a dentist. When's the next schedule appointment? You could probably get one in today or tomorrow. And uh, at least by making the phone call, you feel like you're being a responsible parent doing the best you can on the trail. This becomes a more complicated equation because uh getting off a trail and finding a dentist is what 24, 48 hours of, uh, time or work, uh, maybe 72 hours or more to actually get anything solved or addressed. And then you're talking hotel costs and you're talking, um, you know, maybe not finishing the trail for all eight people. So it just made us reassess standard parenting decisions and have to ask, why are we making this decision? Are we making the decision for the legitimate safety of our child? Or are we just making it to feel good as a parent? And sometimes it was confusing. But I would say that those types of decisions were really good for us as a team and as parents, because it made us realize a lot of the ways we make decisions are not always what for the reasons we think, you know? Okay rattlesnakes yeah there's a crap ton of them in pennsylvania uh and maybe the more scarier copperheads which are both are poisonous but the copperheads are more more poisonous i guess but i stressed out a little bit it's probably the animal that i was most well i was stressed out about bears but we never saw any wow Um, two thousand plus miles no bears with the exception of the the zoo in new york that the Appalachian trail goes right through. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So there was a bear there in a cage. He looked very miserable. Um, and yeah, the snakes, uh, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of them, but it, nothing going back to your pro tip, uh, 
was ever as scary in my mind. It was never scary in real life as it was in my mind. So like by the time we got to snakes, like hikers would do this little thing where they like write on a paper plate, like snakes ahead. And then like you knew 20 feet ahead, like there's going to be snakes up there. And I don't know if there was ever snakes we saw that weren't advertised. <laughs> really? Uh, okay. In terms of like, then maybe there's a few times, but they, it's not like they're jumping out to get you or like in some crack that you're going to put your hand in. There, there wasn't that type of scenario for us. Like they were pretty avoidable and it was more of a fun spectacle to see than a legit danger in my, in my, in our experience. Okay. Very good. Very good. Forest fires. Were there, were there fires in 2018 along the AT? There was a fire that I know of that landed right where we were and blocked off 19 miles of trail that we were not able to accomplish. And we got our panties all in a bunch about that at first because we had never skipped a mile of trail. And there's this kind of like question that we were forced to deal with, which is, do we come back and do it? Or will we still feel good about finishing the trail if we don't do that 19 miles? Or what is it really to be a through hiker? And how much does that matter to us? So yeah, we weren't in any physical danger. Uh, it was an inconvenience for us. Like we had to like shuttle around it and that type of thing. And it seemed annoying because we were like, it's like um, checking off little boxes on a list and you, you have this one in the middle that you can't check. And it's like always there. You have to look at it every single time and it's unchecked, but we got over it pretty damn quick. Um, like we had to kind of adapt our mindset of why we were out there. And some people said, Oh, you, it's not going to feel the same uh, when you finish and you're going to be thinking about that 19 miles. And I'm like, I have not lost one second of sleep about it since then. <laughs> Good for you. I've, I've talked to other people about uh, similar situations where they have gone, you know, 2,500 miles and they, they missed out on, you know, a 40 mile section here because of some, natural disaster going on and uh you know what in my book if you've hiked the 2500 miles if you've done the the you know the, the 2000 plus miles of the at you're you're a through hiker no no question about it yeah it's just it is weird though because the whole thing is fucking arbitrary right i mean who said it needs to be georgia who said it needs to be maine like someone said like this distance is important and not only georgia it's springer mountain georgia and it's mount katahdin maine so like, you know, there, I'm glad that someone defined it like, cause it, it got our asses out there, like to do this thing. Like, you know, it, it's a set distance with a set beginning, a set ending, but then, so you have to, to be motivated. I think you have to pretend like that's really real on one level. And then on another level, we had to hold it loosely to be like, well, what, how real is it? If we can't do all of it, does it make us less of a hiker? Mm-hmm. less of an accomplishment. Yeah. All right. Now here's, here's the one I can't wait to hear about. And that is spending the night with a cult. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, because, well, first of all, cults, can I just say have a lot of there's pros and there's cons and the pros are great. Like this cult had great food. um so i am super thankful for it uh but it was weird and it wasn't like like this cult you know i actually do believe it was a cult um but you know 
in our culture, you say cult. And I think people think like scary, like they're eating their children or trapping you or going to detain you or whisk you off to the woods. Like, uh, so even using that word was maybe a little bit, uh, titillating dramatics, whatever. Like we were trying to, you know, it wasn't like scary like that, but it, it was a testament to one of the lines I put in the book that really stood out to me as I was writing it was back home. We watch documentaries about cults. And this night on the AT, we stayed the night at a cult. So the AT just, through hiking, it, ex, it exposed us to this range of experiences that we spent the night at a CrossFit gym. We spent the night in an abandoned church. We spent the night with basically an Amish family or a Mennonite family. Uh, something that we never would have just done. We rode in the back of a truck. We hitchhiked. You know, we stayed in the women's bathroom, like I told you. Like, just these kind of like, when you think of hiking, I think we'll think like walking in woods. We did that, but some of our favorite experiences were these like one-off kind of weird things that you only consider when you're a hiker and someone's offering you electricity and hot water and they happen to be a cult. And you're like, sounds like a great idea right now, actually, if you will give me salmon also. Fantastic. Fantastic. Hey, we have time for an impromptu top five list. Yeah. Okay. And there doesn't have to be a whole lot of explanation, maybe just enough to get us by, but I want to, I want to, when you think back about your, your 2018 through hike of the AT, uh, what are the top five memories, top five favorite family memories? Can you, can you distill it down to five? Uh, I, I, for the purposes of, of radio, I think I can't, okay. uh, <laughs> um, top five would be the ending, uh, the way we ended, uh, which I'm not going to give a whole lot of reason for here, but I'll just say that our family was not able to legally complete the last two miles, which for most through hikers, the most important, that's where you get your picture. That's the A-frame sign. Our family was not legally able to do that. So we had to create and figure out another ending. Um, and still feel good about ourselves. That was my, one of my biggest memories. Another memory would be making my daughter eggs Benedict for her 17th birthday on trail using one pot, which meant carrying a dozen eggs, uh, 20 some miles, I believe, <laughs> uh, toasting English muffins in the pot with butter, uh, poaching eggs in, in this pot, same pot, and creating a uh, hollandaise sauce, which turns out there's a reason why the whisk comes in really handy that you have at home in your kitchen. And I didn't have that, <laughs> but I pulled it off. That was, a, that was another memory. Um, number three would have to be my wife's, um, shit, what was it? 37th birthday on trail, April 12th in Damascus, Virginia, where a lady showed up with hot Starbucks drinks uh, hamburgers for us, a lot of my kids' favorite cereals. And then another family offered to host us and they had driven an hour to this amazing bakery to pick up this uh, 12 inch red velvet cake that I ordered completely wrong because I just ordered the biggest one thinking that it would be great. But it was like some like, I didn't see that it was like 17 inches deep. So it ended up weighing like 12 pounds or something. It was like 50 servings. Um, so we ended up carrying like eight pounds of cake with us uh on trail which was awesome actually uh what is that three that was three 
Okay, number four would be, um, this is, uh, I believe one day, I'm gonna give you the last two in this one day, was in Pennsylvania. It was our longest day on trail, which I think was 23 point something miles. Um, in the rocks, in the rain, I was able to one, listen to my daughter talk about her dream house for about an hour and a half. She she turned, she's the one that turned 17. And just to have that hour and a half where, you know, when you're hiking, we didn't really use headphones. So the most entertaining thing was each other. We sang, we talked, we joked, we fantasized, we told stories, we laughed, we cried. That was like the entertainment for five mm -hmm. months. And to hear my kid just talk for an hour and a half uninterrupted really made me thankful for that time and wonder why we don't have more of this at home. Also kind of like knowing the answer of why we don't have this back home. <laughs> um, you know, we have walls and entertainment, all these things that seem more important. Um, and then that night we set what felt like an audacious goal of making it to Red Robin uh, by the time it closed, which like I said, would have meant 23.4 miles um, through Pennsylvania rocks in the rain. And it, Red Robin closed, I think it was 10, 10 o'clock and we rolled into Robin at 9.45. And let me tell you, man, those unlimited fries and that burger. Oh man, that bonsai burger with the grilled pineapple on it and the ranch dressing. Oh, the ranch dressing was so creamy. Uh, it was a good, good night. The Red Robin staff had, could not have been happy to see you at 9.45. Family of April went in. You know, I did not care. I was happy to see them. They were like my long lost family. And I did not give two shits what they were feeling at all. I was like, you are my best friend. If you don't like me, I like you enough for both of us. <laughs> That's how I felt. Very good. Very good. Hey, Ben, you know where we are? Oh, are we at uh, that special moment? We're at that special moment, my friend. <laughs> we are at the pro tip insight of the week. What do you have to share with our listeners? It's going to make their next outdoor adventure that much more epic. You know, people say this kind of stuff, but it really is about mindset. Um, we met a lot of hikers. I think two or 3,000 people, no, 5,000 people? I don't remember. Thousands of people registered the year we hiked. Uh, One-fifth of the people finished, which means four-fifths of the people quit for one reason or another that had intended on thru-hiking. Um, and you never know when someone starts, if they're going to finish, like everyone plans on finishing. Uh, we met one kid near the end of our hike that was in New Hampshire. And, uh, I'll never forget this kid. Uh, we were up on these mountains on a day that a lot of people weren't hiking and he was up there going South actually. So he had just started, uh, and we were in the last, you know, three, 400 miles of our hike. And this kid didn't even have a rain jacket. And he wasn't complaining at all. He was just like glad to be alive. And I looked at that kid and I was like, I think that kid's going to finish. You know, and when you get into hiking, it's easy to think, okay, oh shit. Like, okay, what do I need to buy? What, what are the right boots? What are the right poles? Like, what's the right rain jacket? Arcteryx or Patagonia? Like what backpack, this or that? And it's like, you know, people have made it work for centuries and decades with 
the shittiest gear by our standards today. And not only have they made it work, they've found joy out there uh, and found success in their endeavors. And I think it's easy to think that our success or joy is tied to gear or tied to, you know, research or this and that. And I, I do really think that there is a mindset that I don't know how you get it necessarily, but I think it has to do with, I've narrowed it down to maybe lack of entitlement, but I don't even know if that's the most accurate where, you know, to be out in the mountains may just be enough. Like maybe you don't need to be dry. Maybe you don't need to be comfortable. Maybe you don't need to have made the smartest decision to get there. You know, maybe you hiked on the wrong day or in the rain or the bad weather or whatever. And, um, I don't know. I just think I really like to shift the conversation. Maybe I don't mind having the gear conversation, but I like to shift it away from that and ask these questions. How can we adapt our mindset so that we can have success and enjoyment and relationships and satisfaction and joy and all those things? Excellent point. State of mind, expectations, they can, they can make or break you. And don't bring a rain jacket. And don't bring a rain jacket. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So there you have it. That's it. Season two, episode 12 is in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Ben. And I want to thank him for joining us this week. Ben, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Well, the, uh, if you really want, uh, to know, uh, well, there's a social media and then there's the book. Did you want me to answer one of those first? Either one. Okay, so the the best place to get the book, uh, you could buy it from our merch store. Um, It helps us out a lot if you buy it directly from us, but it's also available on Amazon. It's 2,000 miles together. On Instagram and on YouTube, both, we are Fight for Together. F-I-G-H-T-F-O-R, together. Um, And that's kind of, we have a, a good place to start Uh, if I could make a recommendation for people is if you're not interested in starting off with the book is we have an hour long documentary about our Appalachian trail through hike on our YouTube channel or a lot of the, like the, like the um, 24 hour race, or we have a lot of marathon Mm -hmm. videos where people can, there's a video called like how to run 24 hours with kids, which documents that day. Right. Right. And where's the merch store they can get the, uh, the book from that's going to give you a little extra man. Uh, can I send you that link or do you post links? It's like, uh, yeah. it's like fightfortogether.bigcartel.com, I think is what okay. it is. Yeah, send me the link. I'll post it on social media. Okay, great. Absolutely. And you know, I usually finish up here with a, with a asking you for a recommendation on you know adventure media, but I think we're just going to leave it at this. I mean, we've got 2000 miles together. We've got your YouTube channel. We've got how to run 24 hours with kids. <laughs> I think, I think that is, uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of adventure media right there. So I'm going to advise everybody to check out uh, your YouTube channel and your book 2000 miles together. And that will be our adventure media fix. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one proud thing I'll say about myself in terms of writing this, I did hire a writer who did a spectacular job. And one of the people that we hiked with, his name was Hops. We, we hiked uh, probably four months with him. He, he got the book and he's in it a lot. And mm-hmm. he said he cried when he read it and he shared it with all his friends, which really meant a lot to me because this is a man that he's, he wanted to hike since he was 11 and he finished hiking. He was 68 but all, all you hikers know that when you get off the trail, it's so hard to explain to people what it's like. You know, people are like, how was it? And we, you're like, good. And it's like, 
you can't explain to people like what what it's like to roll into a town or to walk see these views and he said that he bought it for all his friends because it helped them understand it and that's i'm i'm not saying this to brag i don't think except for that that's the proudest thing that i wanted to do like for my contribution to the through hiking community is so the book is dedicated to through hikers because i wanted to share just a little bit of what that magic is that you guys have experienced, but yet it's hard to get people to know how great that is. They think you're, we're crazy. And I'm like, no, like maybe we're crazy, but also it kicks ass. So mm -hmm. anyways. Well said, I cannot wait to read it. Thank you so much. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakingmuir at gmail.com. Uh, that's a wrap from the John Freaking Muir studio. Any shout outs, Ben? Any, uh, any of your trail family out there? Or uh... Well, I, first I got to say, Doc, I've done a number of interviews. And this is very interesting, this one. It was very fun. Uh, you asked the types of questions you asked and the types of things you focused on were really – that's why I even asked you, like, why did you talk about that rule thing? Because – uh, I really, it was a very engaging, very interesting um, conversation for me. So I, I really want to thank you for just um, the way you approached it because it went beyond hiking, which is something I'm very passionate about. So thank you for taking that. Um, uh, thank you, Ben. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, the through hikers who hiked with us and made the book, what it was in our story, what it was and gave us the experience. You guys know who you are. If you're listening, uh, thank you um, for meeting us on the trail. That's a smart way to do it. That way you, you, you'd never forget anybody. Oh, I forget. I've forgotten so many people. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot my wife in the intro. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is a trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're on the rocks in the rain in Pennsylvania and you're trying to reach Red Robin before it closes. The trail is the trail. Embrace the sock. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.